you pray with me? Dear Lord Jesus, I pray that in my words, I would be able to communicate as clearly and simply as you have about this heart that you have for us, the heart of the gospel. In your name I pray, amen. So glad to be with you this morning and to, to share together in this most glorious verse, John three sixteen. Many of us, even if we haven't darkened the door of a church for a while, may be familiar with this verse. Um, it's become almost part of culture. John three sixteen. you'll see it at basketball games and other places. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's the most beautiful verse. They're the most beautiful words of Jesus. They open up a door into a world of glory that we can hardly imagine. Like some of you here, I've been pondering and contemplating the, the passing of Billy Graham, somebody who for a lot of us is a very important person in our lives. Billy Graham preached the gospel to somewhere between 100, and 2 million, 100 to 200 million people in the 20th century, probably more than any other person just about. And Billy Graham loved the gospel of John. Tens of millions of people know the gospel of John because they heard Billy Graham preach. And of all the verses in the gospel of John, Billy Graham loved John 3.16 the most. And what's interesting to me is that 100 million people, conservatively, is a lot of people from a lot of different cultures and a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different temperaments and a lot of different social economic sectors. And all of them, everywhere, found in this verse something so true and something so penetrating and something so wonderful that whether they were in a jungle in New Guinea or a high rise in Manhattan, they found this verse and these words of Jesus, life-changing. That's why the more Billy Graham talked about it, the more full of love and faith that he had, the more he talked about Jesus, the more he loved him, and he said at the end of his life, if he could do one thing over again, it would just be to tell Jesus more how much he loved him. I can imagine why just sharing that passion of God over and over and over again. I came across this verse just providentially this week or this, uh, this letter from a friend of ours who's joining the Wycliffe Bible Translators. And uh, these folks go into all parts of the world where um, the scripture is not yet in the language of the people. And uh, she tells this story. Uh, this guy named Lee was a translator advisor for a translation committee called, I don't know how to pronounce this, HDI. You try to pronounce that. Hadi. The Hadi language is spoken in Cameroon, West Africa. Lee was studying the Hadi verb forms and found that the word for love only came in two forms. All the other verbs in this language had three forms, love only two. And these three verb forms would end in I, an A, or a U. However, the verb for love didn't have one of these forms, the U on the end. So this person, Lee, this missionary, asks the Hadith speakers working with him, could you 
And now here he'll substitute one of the verb tenses here for love. Could you devi your wives using the I on the end? Oh yes, they said, devi with the I on the end. That means that you've once loved your wife, but the love has now gone. So we know that. Then Lee says, could you deva your wives with the A on the end, and that verb tense. Oh, of course, dva means a husband loves his wife based on what she does for him. She would be loved as long as she cared for him and did her work well. Then he says, well then, can you devu your wives with the U as the verb form? Oh no, they laughed. If you said that, you would have to keep loving your wife no matter what she did, even if she never got your water or meals. <laughs> this is different cultural values here, right? <laughs> Even if she committed adultery, you would be compelled to keep on loving her. No, we would never say devu, it just doesn't exist. Thinking about John 3.16, Lee asks, but can God devu us? Tears came as the men realized God keeps loving his people down through the centuries no matter how many times they turn away or act wrongly. One simple vowel ending, and love moves from being conditional based on what you do to earn it to I love you based on who I am. A renewed understanding of God's love came to these people that day, and it transformed how men in that Christian community loved and treated their wives. One verse, so much glory, so much power because it changes the way that we think about God. I love this verse. I just want to consider each word in its turn. I want to think about God. God so loved the world. Who is God? He's not an abstraction. And we often think about God this way. God has become such a generic term, OMG. We text it this way. We have the God of the philosophers, the prime mover, the first cause, the first principle, which means not a lot to most people. Or we have the kind of the Santa Claus God, the big man upstairs. God is personal. That's who God is. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has emotions. God has passion. God has love. That's the God that we're hearing about in this verse, not an abstraction, not a theory, not an idea, not a distant vending machine. Somebody who loves you. He loves with intention. God is the first word in this sentence for a reason. It's not us who's the first word in this sentence. God's the first word because he makes the first move. He's the one that determines what must be done. He's the one who determines how to do it. Do you see how much turns on this word? We'll come back to that in a minute. This verse could have unfolded much differently. It's God who decides what to do. And what he decided to do is not to withdraw, not to remove himself, not to destroy, not to evacuate, but to move in to come into your world and to save. God says, love. And John, of all the gospel writers, says it so clearly. He says it in his first letter, John 
John's first letter, chapter four, verse eight. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He doesn't just act loving. He is love itself. And so the verse unfolds. God so loved the world. He so loved it. He loved it in this way. This is a statement of magnitude. He says, I love it this much. I love it this much. And it's not just a statement of magnitude, it's a statement of manner. I love it in this way. I love the world this much in this way. And he's gonna delight to tell you that story now. It's the story of the gospel, the story of how much God, how much love God has, and the story of the way in which he'll show it to us. It's just glorious magnitude and manner. It's an amazing thing because the world that he loves is not so very lovable. God does not love the world because it's lovable, but because it's lost. Oh, the world was created good. You were created good. But you've been marked and marred by sin. The entire world has. And not just part of us, all of us. Not just 95%, 100%. The world is lost in this way. And God didn't come to condemn the world. That's not what this verse is communicating. But neither did he come to kind of pretend. He didn't come to pretend that it's not as bad as it really is. That's why he's drawing in close. It's not the world who loves God. That's a big difference. God didn't come here because it was hospitable. God didn't come here because they were asking for him in the way that we think about it. God didn't come here because he was celebrated. He came here and he was killed. It's not the world who loves God, but God the world. How much does he love the world? Well, he sent Jesus. He didn't send a theorem you know, uh, answer to a riddle, a quiz. He sends himself. Jesus, God's only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now there's a lot of biblical imagery behind that. God loves only sons. They're one and only sons, like Isaac. God sends his only son, his only begotten son, not just God's son, but God the son. John goes on to tell us in that first letter in chapter four, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. More on that in a minute, what it means to live through somebody. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, that's a big word. It just means that instead of us dying for what we've done, he dies instead of us. Right at the, right at the come to the fulcrum here in this verse, right in the very middle, is that it's the whosoever believes. Whosoever, anybody, an African tribe, a Manhattan financier, a stay-at-home mom, the president, not such a bad idea, actually. (laughs) 
whoever believes. And here I want to get to the heart of this here, this belief, because this isn't accessible just through our head, but through our heart. I know that's kind of an odd distinction. Sometimes I don't like making that distinction, but I think you get what I'm saying. God wants it from here. That's belief. This isn't belief that. It's belief in. It's the belief between, it's the difference between believing that that is a chair and actually sitting in it. That's belief that Jesus is talking about here. It's not believing that God exists and that he's a certain way and that he does X, Y, and Z. It's actually trusting him. It's sitting in the chair. Believing doctrine's very important. I think you know that about us by now. But trusting the God that the doctrine describes is even more important. All the doctrine of the world won't help you if you don't put your trust in him. Trust feels. Trust feels. Trust worships, trust adores, trust confesses, it loves, that's trust, that's what it looks like, that's what it feels like, that's believing in. Trust says, this is a beautiful quote from the Song of Solomon, trust says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. That's trust. Where does this come from? You may say, look, I just can't even, you know, this is still too abstract. I don't understand how I can get in that thing that you're talking about. Trust comes and love comes from having been forgiven. Have you been forgiven of your sins? It reminds me of a verse that Jesus says, and I won't read it, the whole passage, it comes from Luke 7, but some of you may remember that there's this story of this sinful woman who uh, breaks into a dinner party that Jesus is having with the really righteous people, the really godly people, at least that's what they think of themselves. And this woman starts praying at Jesus' feet and anoints his feet with this costly perfume. And it causes kind of a scandal and they want to know how Jesus on earth can allow this to happen. And Jesus says this, I tell you, her sins, which are many, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. I want to get at something in our hearts this morning. And it's how we access and how we discover the feeling of trust And I want us to refer to this odd story of these serpents in the wilderness. Have you heard that story before? It's quite a remarkable story. Um, Poor Israel, they're out there in the wilderness and they're grumbling again, which is basically the storyline of the book of Numbers. It should be called the book of grumblers. (laughs) And they're grumbling. And they're saying, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness for there's no food and water and we hate this worthless food, which is shocking because God provided it. Oh, it's just shocking to hear that. I don't even like to say it. And what the Lord did next is really important for all of us. He sent serpents, which in my way of describing and reading the story is kind of like this. The serpent is a tangible expression of Israel's heart. 
And God commanded Moses to put that serpent on a stick, on a pole, that everybody could see it, and said, if you want to live, you have to look at that. You have to look at the manifestation of your wretchedness and your grumbling and your complaint and your awfulness. That's the way to live. Now, friends, it may not seem like it right now, but that's a tremendous mercy. I'll tell you why in a minute, but that's a tremendous mercy that God had the, this plan to say, I am going to take the source of your awfulness and pain and death, and I'm going to make you look at it. I'm going to make it the central focus. I'm going to make it so that you're going to die unless you look at that thing. That serpent is a deceiver. That's what the enemy is. He's the great liar. And the opposite of faith isn't doubt. We can all relate to that guy who said to Jesus, help my unbelief. The opposite of faith is believing another lie instead. We all believe something. If you want to undermine your faith, believe a lie. I'm not talking about believing something inaccurately. I mean, God is <laughs> God. I'm talking about believing a contradiction. And that's what the Jewish people were doing in this story. They said, the food that you sent us, we hate it. You brought us out here to die. And that's a direct contradiction to the mercy of God. When we think of the source of the problem, we don't often think of ourselves. Like if we're looking up at the pole, we don't see a serpent of our own wretchedness. We see our neighbor. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> it's my spouse. That's who I'm looking at every day. Thank you, Lord, for finally pointing out the problem here. <laughs> it's my boss. He's the resource. It's, you know, my parents, my children. We want anything on that pole but that serpent which comes right out of our own heart. And that's what the enemy was saying to the Jewish people and what he wants to say to you. He wants to undermine every single word of this verse, which is Jesus' words, by the way. He wants to undermine it. Just like God spoke to Adam and Eve, Jesus is speaking to you, and what the enemy wants to do is say this, God hates the world. He doesn't love this world. He sent you into this world to kill you. That's why you feel the way you do, and it's his fault. Then Jesus came, I'll tell you why he came, says the enemy, he came to condemn the world. Jesus came to condemn, everybody knows that. Everybody's going to hell because of him. So turn away from him, he's not trustworthy. That's what the enemy wants to say to you over and over and over again. And I want to say to you that it was never supposed to be that way. Human beings were not meant for separation from God and from each other. We don't even, even in our physiology, we have nothing in our brains that prepares us for, for the destruction of a relationship. There's nothing there. Evolution, by the way that the scientists describe it, has prepared us for all kinds of things except the one thing that comes to everything, which is death. Our brain, you would think, have, would have figured that out by now if what, the way it's described is true. But we don't. We have nothing in our brains and in our hearts and in our emotions that prepares us for the pain and trauma of separation and loss. 
and the enemy wants to make you believe that that is your fate and that God himself is responsible for it. But God, who is rich in mercy, will not let you believe in that lie. And he will not let you crucify your neighbor or your spouse or your boss. He wants you to see your own sin on that pole so it can be healed and forgiven. That's why. Because if you don't see the depth of your yuckiness, not just the peripheral parts, but the worst parts, if you don't see that there, you'll never know that Christ forgave that. You'll think that Christ came to forgive the fact that you, I loved my brother too much. You know, and I'm so sorry for that. I can see how that was confusing for him. No. He wants you to see that the worst thing about you that you don't even tell anybody, you don't even write it in your journal, <laughs> right? I keep a journal, but there's the journal that's not written, and we all have that one. That's the one that God reads, and that's the one he wants you to see, and he wants you to know that that's where his love was aimed. That's where his love was targeted, there. Because there's this great thing that happens. When I was a kid, because I'm old now, you know, 3D meant we got these, you got some card with some cartoon on it, and if you turned it, it looked kind of like 3D. You know, we've come a long way since then. <laughs> you know, you look at it, and then you twist it this way, and instead of it being a cat, it's a tiger. How did that happen? How is it that at that moment I'm looking at my worst sin and then all of a sudden there's Jesus there? That's the gospel. Billy Graham said that because Jesus is both God the Son and the Son of Man, as he hung on the cross, he was able to have one hand holding God and one hand holding you. And that's the relationship that he wants to restore one hand holding God and one hand holding you in your yuck and in your sin and your awfulness and in the pain and in the hurt. God was in Jesus reconciling the world to himself. One great Bible teacher calls this the wonderful exchange. Made by his boundless goodness, he says. Having undertaken our weakness, he has made us strong in his strength. Having submitted to our poverty, he has transferred to us his riches. Having taken himself the burden of unrighteousness with which we were oppressed, he has clothed us with his righteousness. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. God did not send his son into the world to contend the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned because whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. Believe in the name. What does that mean? It means to trust God's nature, to trust his character, his character that Jesus came to take away your sins and give us, give you his life instead. Do you trust him this way in your heart? Do you merely muddle through with intellectual belief and no personal relationship? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? 
Perhaps it's because, if you don't, that you still believe a lie. Maybe you just say, look, I just, I'm, it's hard for me. Maybe your heart's just callous and you don't want to believe because you like what's on the pole more than, more than you like what's on the cross. I'm praying that you'll be able to make that exchange yourself to like what's on the cross more than what's on the pole. Maybe you believe a lie about your own goodness or your power to live your own life or maybe you just believe your own grudge and you just don't want to let that go. Maybe, you have a, maybe there's a lie you believe about God's character. He just can't be that good. But John 3.16 gives you Jesus' words of absolute clarity and truth. The way to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the way to to not face that condemnation and judgment one day. The way to experience the forgiveness of sins in real life is through trust. Trust that says, I repent of my sin. I'm not going around it. I'm not trying to figure out how to navigate around that pole. I'm dying. That's what that serpent says on that pole. I've been bit, and I'm not gonna go around, I'm gonna confess my sins, and I'm gonna trust what Jesus says, and I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to follow him, and I'm going to have his love. I want to close with a, a reference from the Old Testament prophet, Zechariah. He also talks about what happens when the Lord is lifted up like this. Zechariah says to Israel, the grumblers, Israel the complainers, Israel the idolaters, those of us here today. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And on that day there shall be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Friends, God is zealous for you today. He's zealous for your heart. He's zealous for your trust. He's zealous for your love. He's zealous for your worship. And he has such glorious things in store for you. You're his beloved. He wants to forgive and heal and restore and give you life everlasting. Trust in him. Amen.